You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral, and you can find out more at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com, where you'll find links to send me a message, as well as links to make a donation to keep this podcast and all my podcasts free and independent. An episode about Howard Zinn. Not necessarily so much about Howard Zinn, but about and by Howard Zinn. If Howard was still alive, uh, August 24th would have been Howard Zinn's 100th birthday. So in honor of that, here's a couple pieces in the media remembering Howard Zinn, as well as a piece by Howard Zinn. First up is a piece published at thenation.com, written by Robert Cohen and Sonia Murrow. Today marks the centennial of historian Howard Zinn's birth. More than a decade after Zinn's death in 2010, his best-selling A People's History of the United States remains the most popular and radical introduction to American history, having recently surpassed 4 million copies sold. Zinn did more than any other historian to popularize the historiographical revolution of the long 1960s, bringing from the campuses to the public its spotlight on the oppression of groups formerly marginalized in U.S. history textbooks, African Americans, workers, Native Americans, women, and on their liberation movements. In place of traditional textbook triumphalism, Zinn's People's History offered a scathing account of American capitalism's role in promoting economic, racial, and sexual inequality. A World War II bombardier who, in the wake of Hiroshima, came out of that war profoundly disillusioned with the American warfare state. Zinn saw history as an offering as offering evidence to separate rhetoric from reality in U.S. foreign policy, enabling Americans to probe how many times their president said we're going to war for democracy, and what have those wars really been about? Zinn was a leading critic of the Vietnam War who published one of the most influential books calling for its end, Vietnam, The Logic of Withdrawal, in 1967. In A People's History, Zinn offered what may be the most profoundly anti-war introduction to American history ever written. Zinn, as historian Robin D.G. Kelly put it, was a chronicler of the inhumanity of war. In a people's history, anti-war activists were the heroes, not tank commanders, the cavalry, or the fighter pilots. Imagine a history book that sells over a million copies that doesn't sell war. Zinn's historical work reflected other key aspects of his life experience. A child of working-class immigrants, Zinn spoke and wrote of growing up class-conscious, keenly aware of the contrast between his birth family's poverty in the Depression years of his youth 
In the images of affluence conveyed by Hollywood, class conflict would be a major theme in his people's history. So was the quest for racial equality. From 1956 to 63, Zinn taught at Spelman College, a historically black women's college in Atlanta, both mentoring and taking inspiration from his students, who helped to lead the sit-in movement and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC. Zinn and Ella Baker were the only older adults on SNCC's executive committee, and he would go on to write the first book on the student wing of the Black Freedom Movement. SNCC, The New Abolitionists, 1964. It was his experience with this nonviolent grassroots insurgency that committed him to the kind of bottom-up view of history and politics that would characterize his people's history. This experience also gave him a profoundly anti-racist perspective on American exceptionalism, in which he argued that, quote, There is not a country in world history in which racism has been more important for so long a time as the United States. And the problem of the quote color line, as W.E.B. Dubois put it, is still with us. The Spellman experience also awakens in to the role of sexual inequality in American history. His 1960 Nation article, Finishing School for Pickets, on the Spellman students' protests against Jim Crowism and their revolt against campus sexual paternalism, was among the first to highlight the activism of black women students. Zinn would be fired for supporting that revolt. Part of what made a people's history so popular was Zinn's candor about his biases. Zinn made no pretense of neutrality, a bold departure from bland textbooks. In one of the most memorable passages from the book's opening chapter, Zinn made such a neutral pose sound amoral. He argued that there was an inevitable taking of sides which comes from selection and emphasis in history, that in a world of conflict, between conqueror and conquered, master and slaves, capitalist and workers, dominators and dominated in race and sex, victims and executioners. It is the job of thinking people, as Albert Camus suggested, not to be on the side of the executioners. For Zen, this moral positioning yielded a form of advocacy history in which he championed the oppressed, telling Columbus's story from the standpoint of the indigenous people he conquered and brutalized. The Constitution from the standpoint of the slaves of Andrew Jackson, as seen by the Cherokees, and so on. Zinn's iconoclastic approach to American history has always infuriated right-wingers who view it as anti-American. This was the case with Reed Irvine, head of accuracy in academia, who sought to ban and even burn a people's history in the 1980s. And more recently with Donald Trump, who in his last year in the White House denounced Zinn as a dangerous propagandist, who along with critical race theory in the 1619 Project, was supposedly corrupting the country's young by making, quote, students ashamed of their own history. Neither teachers nor students have found such condemnations persuasive. Zinn has had more reasonable critics, historians who see him as simplifying history by demonizing elites, romanticizing the working class and not grappling with its acceptance of capitalism. But such criticism underscores the fact that decades after its publication, a people's history still matters, and it is still sparking debate in history classrooms. Also enduring is Zinn's concern that too many high schools lack the academic freedom to debate 
dissident historical interpretations, which led him in 2008 to co-found the Zen Education Project. Today, with its impressive online presence, ZEP reaches more than 100,000 teachers and not only promotes people's history and progressive pedagogy, but has also spearheaded resistance to the recent bans imposed by Republican legislatures and governors on critical race theory and on candid teaching about race and gender in history classrooms. In light of such bans, the question Americans might reflect on to commemorate Zinn's 100th birthday is whether our nation is free enough to allow its youth to read and discuss people's history, the 1619 Project, and critical race theory, a history that shows those beyond the elite matter, a history that, in Zinn's words, can, quote, promote democracy by giving people the idea that they, too, can participate in history. This next piece is an excerpt from a free book. You can pick this up uh, from a couple different places. Um, one of those is Seven Stories Press. And another is Haymarket Books. This book, uh, published on the 100th anniversary of Howard Zinn's birth, is called A Life of Activism and is a collection of different pieces and essays throughout Zinn's life. This is chapter six, Means and Ends, Against Discouragement, excerpted from the Zinn Reader, second edition, Writings on Disobedience and Democracy by Howard Zinn of 2009. This current volume begins with an essay, The Southern Mystique, about the time when I first arrived to teach at Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia in 1956. I taught at Spelman, a college for African-American women, for seven years before being asked to leave in 1963 on the basis of my involvement in the movement for civil rights that had gained a great deal of momentum during my time there. What follows is a speech I gave to Spelman students in 2005 when I was invited back to campus to offer a commencement address to graduating seniors. I am deeply honored to be invited back to Spelman after 42 years. I would like to thank the faculty and trustees who voted to invite me, and especially your president, Dr. Beverly Tatum. And it is a special privilege to be here with Diane Carroll and Virginia Davis Floyd. But this is your day, the students graduating today. It is a happy day for you and your families. I know you have your own hopes for the future so it may be a little presumptuous for me to tell you what hopes I have for you, but they are exactly the same ones that I have for my grandchildren. My first hope is that you will not be too discouraged by the way the world looks at this moment. It is easy to be discouraged because our nation is at war, still another war, war after war, and our government seems determined to expand its empire even if it costs the lives of tens of thousands of human beings. There is poverty in this country, and homelessness, and people without health care, and crowded classrooms. But our government, which has trillions of dollars to spend, is spending its wealth on war. There are a billion people in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East who need clean water and medicine to deal with malaria and tuberculosis and AIDS. But our government which has thousands of nuclear weapons, is experimenting with even more deadly nuclear weapons. Yes, it is easy to be discouraged by all that. 
But let me tell you why, in spite of what I have just described, you must not be discouraged. I want to remind you that 50 years ago, racial segregation here in the South was entrenched as tightly as was apartheid in South Africa. The national government, even with liberal presidents like Kennedy and Johnson in office, was looking the other way while black people were beaten and killed and denied the opportunity to vote. So black people in the South decided they had to do something by themselves. They boycotted and sat in and picketed and demonstrated and were beaten and jailed and some were killed, but their cries for freedom were soon heard, heard all over the nation and around the world and the President and Congress finally did what they had previously failed to do, enforce the 14th and 15th Amendments to the Constitution. Many people had said the South will never change, but it did change. It changed because ordinary people organized and took risks and challenged the system and would not give up. That's when democracy came alive. I want to remind you also that when the war in Vietnam was going on and young Americans were dying and coming home paralyzed and our government was bombing the villages of Vietnam, bombing schools and hospitals and killing ordinary people in huge numbers, it looked hopeless to try to stop the war. But just as in the Southern movement, people began to protest and soon it caught on. It was a national movement. Soldiers were coming back and denouncing the war and young people were refusing to join the military and the war had to end. The lesson of that history is that you must not despair, that if you are right and you persist, things will change. The government may try to deceive the people and the newspapers and television may do the same. But the truth has a way of coming out. The truth has a power greater than a hundred lies. I know you have practical things to do to get jobs and get married and have children. You may become prosperous and be considered a success in the way our society defines success by wealth and standing and prestige. But that is not enough for a good life. Remember Tolstoy's story, The Death of Ivan Ilyich. A man on his deathbed reflects on his life, how he has done everything right, obeyed the rules, become a judge, married, had children, and is looked upon as a success. Yet, in his last hours, he wonders why he feels a failure. After becoming a famous novelist, Tolstoy himself had decided that this was not enough, that he must speak out against the treatment of the Russian peasants, that he must write against war and militarism. My hope is that whatever you do to make a good life for yourself, whether you become a teacher or a social worker or business person or lawyer or poet or scientist, you will devote part of your life to making this a better word world for your children, for all children. My hope is that your generation will demand an end to war, that your generation will do something that has not yet been done in history and wipe out the national boundaries that separate us from other human beings on this earth. Recently I saw a photo on the front page of the New York Times which I cannot get out of my mind. It showed ordinary Americans sitting on chairs on the southern border of Arizona facing Mexico. They were holding guns and they were looking for Mexicans who might be trying to cross the border into the United States. This was horrifying to me. 
the realization that in this 21st century of what we call civilization, we have carved up what we claim is one world into 200 artificially created entities we call nations and are ready to kill anyone who crosses a boundary. Is not nationalism, that devotion to a flag, an anthem, a boundary, so fierce it leads to murder, one of the great evils of our time, along with racism, along with religious hatred? These ways of thinking, cultivated, nurtured, indoctrinated from childhood on, have been useful to those in power, deadly for those out of power. Here in the United States, we are brought up to believe that our nation is different from others, an exception in the world, uniquely moral, that we expand into other lands in order to bring civilization, liberty, democracy. But if you know some history, you know that's not true. If you know some history, you know we massacred Indians on this continent, invaded Mexico, sent armies into Cuba and the Philippines. We killed huge numbers of people, we did not bring them democracy or liberty. We did not go into Vietnam to bring democracy. We did not invade Panama to stop the drug trade. We did not invade Afghanistan and Iraq to stop terrorism. Our aims were the aims of all the other empires of world history. More profit for corporations. More power for politicians. The poets and artists among us seem to have clearer understanding of the disease of nationalism. Perhaps the black poets especially are less enthralled with the virtues of American, quote, liberty and, quote, democracy. Their people have enjoyed so little of it. The great African-American poet Langston Hughes addressed his country as follows. You really haven't been a virgin for so long. It's ludicrous to keep up the pretext. You've slept with all the big powers in military uniforms, and you've taken the sweet life of all the little brown fellows. Being one of the world's big vampires, why don't you come on out and say so, like Japan and England and France and all the other nymphomaniacs of power. I am a veteran of the Second World War that was considered a good war, but I've come to the conclusion that war solves no fundamental problems and only leads to more wars. War poisons the minds of soldiers, leads them to kill and torture, and poisons the soul of the nation. My hope is that your generation will demand that your children be brought up in a world without war. If we want a world in which the people of all countries are brothers and sisters, if the children all over the world are considered as our children, then war, in which children are always the greatest casualties, cannot be accepted as a way of solving problems. I was on the faculty of Spelman College for seven years from 1956 to 1963. It was a heartwarming time because the friends we made in those years have remained our friends all these years. My wife Rosalind and I and our two children lived on campus. Sometimes when we went into town, white people would ask, how is it to be living in the black community? It was hard to explain, but we knew this, that in downtown Atlanta, we felt as if we were in alien territory, and when we came back to the Spelman campus, we felt that we were at home. Those years at Spelman were the most exciting of my life, the most educational, certainly. 
I learned more from my students than they learned from me. Those were the years of the great movement in the South against racial segregation, and I became involved in that in Atlanta, in Albany, Georgia, in Selma, Alabama, in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, in Greenwood, in Itabena, in Jackson. I learned something about democracy, that it does not come from the government from on high. It comes from people getting together and struggling for justice. I learned about race. I learned something that any intelligent person realizes at a certain point, that race is a manufactured thing, an artificial thing, and while race does matter, as Cornell West has written, it only matters because certain people want it to matter, just as nationalism is something artificial. I learned that what really matters is that all of us, of whatever so-called race and so-called nationality, are human beings and should cherish one another. I was lucky to be at Spelman at a time when I could watch a marvelous transformation in my students who were so polite, so quiet, and then suddenly they were leaving the campus and going into town and sitting in and being arrested and then coming out of jail full of fire and rebellion. You can read all about that in Harry Lefevre's book, Undaunted by the Fight. One day Marion Wright, now Marion Wright Edelman, who was my student at Spelman and was one of the first arrested in the Atlanta sit-ins, came to our house on campus to show us a petition she was about to put on the bulletin board of her dormitory. The heading on the petition epitomized the transformation taking place at Spelman College. Marion had written on the top of the petition, Young ladies who can pick it, please sign below. My hope is that you will not be content just to be successful in the way that our society measures success, that you will not obey the rules when the rules are unjust, that you will act out the courage that I know is in you. There are wonderful people, black and white, who are models. I don't mean African-Americans like Condoleezza Rice or Colin Powell or Clarence Thomas, who have become servants of the rich and powerful. I mean W.E.B. Du Bois and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and Marion Wright Edelman and James Baldwin and Josephine Baker and good white folk, too, who defied the establishment to work for peace and justice. Another of my students at Spelman, Alice Walker, who, like Marion, has remained our friend all these years, came from a tenant farmer's family in Eatonton, Georgia, and became a famous writer one of her first published poems, she wrote, It is true, I've always loved the darling ones, like the black young man who tried to crash all barriers at once, wanted to swim at a white beach in Alabama, nude. I'm not suggesting that you go that far. But you can help to break down barriers of race, certainly, but also of nationalism, that you do what you can. You don't have to do something heroic, just something, to join with millions of others who will just do something. Because all of those somethings at certain points in history come together and make the world better. That marvelous African-American writer, Zora Neale Hurston, who wouldn't do what white people wanted her to do, who wouldn't do what black people wanted her to do, who insisted on being herself, said that her mother advised her, leap for the sun, 
You may not reach it, but at least you will get off the ground. By being here today, you are already standing on your toes, ready to leap. My hope for you is a good life. And finally, for this episode, here is an excerpt from a piece published at Democracy Now!, um, which includes a few different interviews conducted by Amy Goodman of Howard Zinn and wrapped up in, in a memory of Howard Zinn on his 100 years. Today we spend the hour remembering Howard Zinn, the late great historian, author, professor, playwright, and activist. Zinn was born 100 years ago, August 24, 1922, to working-class Jewish immigrant parents in Brooklyn. He died in 2010 at the age of 87, but his books continued to be read across the globe. At 18, Zinn began working as a shipyard worker, then joined the Air Force, where he served as a bombardier in World War II. After witnessing the horrors of war, Howard Zinn went on to become a lifelong dissident and peace activist. He was active in the civil rights movement and other struggles for social justice, taught at Spelman College in Atlanta, the historically black college for women. He was fired for insubordination, for standing up for student protesters. While at Spelman, he served on the executive committee of, of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. After being forced out of Spelman, Zinn became a professor at Boston University. In 1967, he published Vietnam, The Logic of Withdrawal. It was the first book on the war to call for immediate withdrawal, no conditions. A year later, he and Father Dan Berrigan traveled to North Vietnam to receive the first three American prisoners of war released by the North Vietnamese. When Dan Ellsberg needed a place to hide the Pentagon Papers before they were leaked to the press, he went to Howard and his late wife, Roz Zinn. In 1980, Howard Zinn published his classic work, A People's History of the United States. The book would go on to sell over a million copies, change the way we looked at history in the United States. Howard Zinn was a regular guest on Democracy Now! from the time we went on the air in 1996 up until his death. We begin today's show with an interview I did with Howard Zinn in 2005 when he came to our Firehouse studio. It's great to have you with us. Well, it's nice of you to invite me. I was worried. Well, you just came from Bedford Hills Correctional Facility. Well, actually, yesterday afternoon I spoke at the Bedford Hills euphemistically called Correctional Facility. They hardly correct anything, but spoke to prisoners there, women prisoners, mostly prisoners of color. I spoke to them yesterday afternoon before I gave this talk last night at Manhattanville College. And what did you talk about with the women? Well, they had been using my book. They have classes. They're using my book, A People's History of the United States. And I talked to them about history, about doing history, about why I did history the way I did, why I did unneutral history, and how I came to do it. And I told them something about my life. And of course, I always like to talk about that, you know. And then they asked a lot of questions, a very lively, enthusiastic, excited group. I mean, if every teacher in the country had a class like that, you know, they would be inspired. And it's wonderful, and I've always found this to be true, wonderful and always amazing when you talk to prisoners who should be the last ones 
to be up and optimistic and in good spirits, but it's always there. It's actually encouraging, you know, and of course, troubling to know that these people, these remarkable people, are being kept in prison, you know, very often, most of the time, for nonviolent crimes, and kept there for long periods of time. It's a sort of sad commentary on American society that we have people in Washington who are free, and these people are in prison. You talked about being a teacher, but Howard Zinn, the places you were where you did teach, well, Spellman, you were fired, and Boston University, you were almost fired. Oh, are you trying to make me out to, as a troublemaker? What happened to you at Spellman? At Spellman, I got involved with my students in the actions that were going on in the South, the sit-ins, the demonstrations, the picket lines. I was supporting my students. And this was the first black president of Spelman College, a very conservative institution. He wasn't happy about me joining the students and all of these things, wasn't happy about a lot of the things that they did, but he couldn't do anything about it. But when the students came back from, you might say, from jail and then rebelled against the campus regulations and the restrictions on them, and I supported them, that was too much. During the civil rights years, this was, yeah, these were during the civil rights years. And so, you know, he was very unhappy with the fact that I was supporting the students who were rebelling against the paternalism and the authoritarianism on that campus. They were women students. Yeah, these are black women students. And, you know, the movement brought them out of this little sort of convent-like atmosphere of Spelman College and out into the world. The author Alice Walker was one of those students. Yeah, Alice Walker was one of my students. Marion Wright Edelman, the head of the Children's Defense Fund now in Washington, she was one of my students. I'm very proud of those students I had at Spelman. And yeah, Marion Wright Edelman was in jail, and Alice Walker was in jail. And yeah, it was a great moment. Now, Boston University was many years later. Why did you almost get thrown out of there? Why did I almost get thrown out of Boston University? We had a strike. Faculty went on strike. Secretaries went on strike. They settled with the faculty after what was a successful strike, but not with the secretaries. And so I and some other faculty refused to cross the secretary's picket line. And five of us who refused to do that were threatened with firing, even though all of us had tenure. And so it was a long struggle. But we won. Going back before both of your tenures as professor, you were a bombardier in World War II. That's true, yes. And you talk about your final bombing run not over Japan, not over Germany, but over France. Yeah, well, we thought our bombing missions were over. The war was about to come to an end. This was in April of 1945. You may remember the war ended in early May 1945. This was a few weeks before the war was going to be over, and everybody knew it was going to be over, and our armies were past France into Germany. But there was a little pocket of German soldiers hanging around this little town of Royan on the Atlantic coast of France, and the Air Force decided to bomb them. 1,200 heavy bombers, and I was in one of them, flew over this little town of Royan and dropped napalm. First use of napalm in the European theater. And we don't know how many people we killed, how many people were terribly burned as a result of what we did. But I did it, like most soldiers do, unthinkingly, mechanically, 
thinking we're on the right side, they're on the wrong side, and therefore we can do whatever we want and it's okay. And only afterward, only really after the war, did I, when I was reading about Hiroshima from John Hersey, and reading the stories of the survivors of Hiroshima and what they went through, only then did I begin to think about the human effects of bombing. Only then did I begin to think about what it meant to human beings on the ground when bombs were dropped on them. Because as a bombardier, I was flying at 30,000 feet, six miles high, couldn't hear screams, couldn't see blood. And this is modern warfare. In modern warfare, soldiers fire, they drop bombs, and they have no notion, really, of what is happening to the human beings that they're firing on. Everything is done at a distance. This enables terrible atrocities to take place. And I think reflecting back on that bombing raid and thinking of that in Hiroshima, and all the other raids on civilian cities and the killing of huge numbers of civilians in German and Japanese cities, the killing of 100,000 people in Tokyo in one night of firebombing. All of that made me realize war, even so-called good wars against fascism like World War II, wars don't solve any fundamental problems, and they always poison everybody on both sides. They poison the minds and souls of everybody on both sides. We're seeing that now in Iraq, where the minds of our soldiers are being poisoned by being an occupying army in a land where they are not wanted. And the results are terrible. You learned you dropped napalm on this French village? Well, we didn't actually didn't know what it was. They said, oh, you're not going to have the usually 500-pound demolition bombs. You're going to carry one. You're going to carry 30 100-pound canisters of jellied gasoline. We had no idea what that was, but it was napalm. You went to that village later? Later I went, yeah. Later I visited that village about 10 years after the war, and I went to the library, which had been destroyed and which was now rebuilt, and I dug out records of the survivors and what they had written about the bombing. And I wrote a kind of essay about the bombing of Royan, which appears, where does it appear? It appears in my book, The Zin Reader, and also in my book, The Politics of History. But it was for me, it was a very important experience, a very great sobering lesson about so-called good wars. You learned when you were there on the ground many years later who had died? Well, I, you know, I spoke to people who had survived and that whose family members had died, and they were very bitter about the bombing. And, you know, they attributed it to all sorts of things, the desire to try out a new weapon. It's amazing how many things are done in a war just to try out new weapons. You know, maybe one of those reasons for dropping the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were to see what this does to human beings. Human beings become sacrifices in the desire to develop new military technology. And I think that was one of those instances. You went to Vietnam, to North Vietnam, with Dan Berejin? Yeah, yeah. Why? Why? Well, this was early 1968. This was the time of the Tet Offensive, also the time of the Tet Holiday, the Vietnamese holiday. And the North Vietnamese decided they wanted to release the first three airmen prisoners who had been shot down over North Vietnam. And they wanted to release them in the custody of not the American government, but the peace movement. So Daniel Berrigan, poet, priest, whom I'd never met before, 
he and I traveled together to Hanoi, to North Vietnam, to pick up these three American airmen who were being released by the North Vietnamese. And then we spent some time in Hanoi and in the surrounding area, visited bombed-out areas, visited little villages that had been jet-bombed in the middle of the night, a million miles from any possible military target. And that, we were being bombed. Vietnam was being bombed every night. Every day we were going into air raid shelters. Every night Daniel Berrigan would write a poem about what had happened that day. And you know, what do you say to those then and now before the invasion who would go to Iraq, those who went to North Vietnam, when they would be called traitors giving comfort to the enemy? You mean Americans who went to North Vietnam? You mean like Jane Fonda and so many others who went to North Vietnam? And Iraq before, I mean even people like Congressmember McDermott of Seattle, reporters, saying that they should resign. Oh, people have gone to Iraq, and I mean, what about, you know, there's people in Voices in the Wilderness, Americans who went to Iraq and violating the U.S. sanctions, bringing food and medicine, you know, and the whole business of being traitors. You know, I think there's a whole, there's somehow wrong-headed notion of what treason is and what patriotism is. And there's some notion that if you disobey the orders of your government or the laws of your government, you're being treasonous. But I believe the government is being treasonous and the government is being unpatriotic when the government violates the fundamental rights of human beings, when the government invades another country, a country that has not attacked it, a country that has not threatened it. When our government invades another country and drops bombs and kills huge numbers of people, and then Americans have the guts to go to that country and bring people food and medicine or go see what's going on, as many Americans did when they went to Vietnam, I think these are the most patriotic Americans. And you know, if you define patriotism as obedience to the government, then you are, I think, following a kind of totalitarian principle, because that's the principle of a totalitarian state, that you do what the government tells you to do. And democracy means that the government is an instrument of the people. This is a declaration of independence. Governments are artificial entities set up in order to preserve the rights equal right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness of the people. When the government violates those rights, it is the duty of the people to defy that government. That is patriotism. Howard Zinn, you called your autobiography You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train. Why? Well, I stole it from myself. That is, I used to say that to my classes at the beginning of every class. I wanted to be honest with them about the fact that they were not entering class where the teacher would be neutral. It was not going to be a class where the teacher spent half a year or a year with the students and they would have no idea where the teacher stood on the important issues. This is not going to be a neutral class, I said. I don't believe in neutrality. I believe neutrality is impossible because the world is already moving in certain directions. Wars are going on. Children are starving. And to be neutral to pretend neutrality, to not take a stand in a situation like that, is to collaborate with whatever is going on, to allow it to happen. I did not want to be a collaborator with what was happening. I wanted to enter into history. I wanted to play a role. I wanted my students to play a role. I wanted us to intercede. I wanted my history to intercede and to take a stand on behalf of peace, on behalf of racial equality or sexual equality. And so I wanted my students to know that right from the beginning, 
know that you can't be neutral on a moving train. And that's going to wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. In case you hadn't noticed and hadn't realized where the title of this podcast came from, that is precisely where the title came from. If you want to check out back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral, just go to youcan'tbeneutral.com and you'll find them all there. And if you want to uh, find me on Twitter, that is at YCBneutral. You can also listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. Now, a moment of Zen. Thanks for listening. So I'm glad you're all going to be professionals. And the problem is how to work in a field without becoming a professional. In, in that sense of the term, in that narrow, warped, anti-human sense of the term. So when I, when I became a historian, that is when I entered what I dis- soon discovered was a profession, when I became a historian, I already knew that I was not going to be neutral. I already understood for myself that in teaching history or writing history, my point of view was going to be there. I was not going to be a, what I call a disinterested historian. I had interest. I was not going to be an objective historian because I, I didn't really believe objectivity was possible, nor was it desirable. Unless objectivity meant telling the truth as you saw it, not lying, not distorting, uh, not omitting information, and not omitting arguments uh, because they don't conform to some idea that you have. Um, But if objectivity uh, meant uh, not taking a stand, uh, if objectivity meant uh, presenting data without caring uh, about the social effect of the kind of data you present, and that, I didn't want that kind of objectivity. History was interesting to me, but I wasn't going into history because it was interesting. Uh, or to put it another way, uh, what was interesting about history is that it represented interests, different kinds of interests. I was very much aware of that. And I, I was aware as soon as I began to, to study history that you couldn't really be objective. You couldn't really just recapture the past as it was, a phrase that was used in, starting in the, in the 19th century uh, when history, history became a, a profession uh, in, in an important sense. Uh, reproduce the, ha- the past as it was, and an idea which is still uh, heard today 